morning. Well, this morning, um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And uh, welcome this morning. We are going to, to get into a passage in Scripture that uh, really is one of the most difficult passages to me in all of the Bible. And as we look at it, um, when we go through the book of Romans, one of the things that we've been doing is looking at um, just this theme of the gospel. What is the gospel and what does the gospel look like? When we see the, the book of Romans in chapters 1 all the way through 11, it's theology. It's doctrine, it's this belief, and, and what does this mean for our lives? And then when we get to chapter 12 through the end of the book, it's this practical application. But here in Romans chapter 9, you're going to see this kind of parentheses, and, and we're going to look at this morning how this kind of all fits in. Um, as you're turning there to Romans chapter 9, I want to encourage you, we have a, a few people that are getting baptized next Sunday. If you've never been baptized, um, Next Sunday, we're going to have a, a baptism right here. So I encourage you, uh, baptism doesn't save a person, but it w it's a reflection of an inward change, what God is doing in a person's life. So if you've never been baptized and you would like to be baptized, then talk to me afterwards and we would be uh, really blessed to be able to do that. And then also just want to encourage you again uh, for Wednesday to come out uh, to the beach and just have a good time of fellowship as we close out. Uh, this summer. But Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read this passage of scripture, and then after I read it, we're just going to look at it in depth. It says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom we are the of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called blessed. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall I say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. All right. Now, Romans chapter 9. Was that a run-on sentence or what? I mean, you ever read a sentence that just like keeps going? You're just trying to track with the flow of thought, and it just like, it's this one sentence, and um, you know, you're reading it, and maybe thinking like, I should understand the Bible better than I do, because I'm reading the sentence. I'm trying to figure out what Paul is even trying to write. Do you remember that Peter said this about Paul's letters? He said, Paul... Um, and some of his letters are difficult to understand. Now, if Peter the Apostle said that some of Paul's uh, letters are difficult to understand, then I think for us, we could realize that it's okay if it's difficult for us to understand as well. But this morning, the title of the message is God Has a Plan. Now, specifically, God has a plan for Israel in, verse, in chapters 9 through 11, but we're going to see that this also pertains to us. At the end of Romans chapter 8, we studied an incredible passage about God's unfailing love for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, um, not height or depth, any created thing, not things past or things present or things to come. Nothing's ever going to separate us from the love of God. So that's our security. That should be our blessing. But Paul addresses a question here in Romans chapter 9. 
The question is this. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, how could God's own people, the Jews, miss their Messiah? So if nothing can separate us from the love of God and the Jews are God's people, then, then doesn't that kind of freak you out a little bit in a sense? And Paul's addressing Christians in Rome. If they miss their Messiah, then what about us? I mean, we're, we're the Gentiles who have come later. We've come afterwards. And so as Paul addresses this, I, I guess another way of thinking about this question, are God's people cast off? And maybe personally, what if God rejects me? What if at some point in my life, God is going to reject me? So these questions all come into play in Romans chapter 9. And when Paul begins Romans chapter 9, he begins by telling them, I, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, I have this, um, I guess it's a personal thing for me. I struggle a little bit when people say, well, to be honest. And, and the reason why I struggle with that, it's kind of like we're in this conversation, maybe it's a conflict, and you know, we're, we're arguing or we're going through some difficulty, and then all of a sudden they throw out, to be honest. And then I wonder, were you not honest before you said, to be honest? It's kind of like, well, now I'm really going to be honest. I'm really going to tell you what I really think. That's not what Paul is doing here. What Paul is doing is he is addressing people that have a tendency to doubt him. Now, now I look at Paul, and he was a, a Pharisee. He was a, a Judaizer. He was a religious man. And then all of a sudden, there's this change in his life. He's a follower of Christ. And we see this change, and people had a tendency maybe to think, is he real? Is this guy real? Have you ever doubted someone? because their background was so bad that when they came to Christ, he thought, Are, is this real? Like, can they really be changed? Can they be different? And what Paul is saying is that I'm not lying, and it's not just my conscience, but it's my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's important that when it comes to our conscience that we're, we realize that we have to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. That's his name, the Holy Spirit, not just the Spirit of God. He's the Holy Spirit. My conscience can get seared. How can my conscience get seared? By continuing in sin that I don't repent of. Man, my conscience can get kind of messed up. I don't know if you've ever dealt with that with a person who you feel like, don't, maybe you've even asked this question, don't you have a conscience? Because look at what you're doing. Look how you're, you're hurting these people. And it's like, they don't care. That blows me away. You know, when I think about um, just around the world, you look at people that are being tortured. You look at um, genocide. When you hear about a whole village that gets wiped out, and you think, do, do people have a conscience? And what's happened is their conscience has become seared. So Paul is not saying, hey, just trust my conscience. He's saying that my conscience bears witness with the holy spirit and with all of this buildup, now he's going to tell us that heart behind his conscience is this in verse two i have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for i could wish that i myself were a curse from christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh now paul even though he has this joy you read the book of philippians it's a letter of joy that is written from prison but there is a grief that is continually in Paul's heart. And I want to say that for those of you that are followers of Christ, you understand this grief when you know someone that you love that is not walking with the Lord. That grief is what Paul continually feel, feels. He, he has this grief for his countrymen, for his brethren, for the people that, that are his heritage. And I think that that's, a quality and a characteristic that we should have, that we should have grief for other people, that we should have compassion for other people. It's not just a thing of, well, God's blessed me and I know the Lord and I know that I'm going to heaven, but what about the people that don't know the Lord? What about the people that aren't following Christ? And so when Paul writes to them, he's saying, this is my heart. And, and if it were possible, even though we know that it's not, if it were possible, hypothetically, He's saying, I wish that even I myself were accursed 
from Christ for my brethren. And you know what? That amazes me because I can't say that. I, I, I look at Paul's love as this amazing love for his countrymen because they've even come up against him. They've even persecuted him. You know, it, it's sometimes, it's one thing to love people that are friendly towards us. You know, you might have a friend that they don't know Christ, but they're friendly towards you. Or a family member that loves you and, and you're, you're so grieved for them because they're not following Christ. But Paul's love for his countrymen is even people that are coming up against him that are willing to stone, that want to put him to death. And Paul's heart even goes out to them. You know, it's amazing because it also um, is reflected in the life of Moses. In Exodus 32, um, Moses, after God was about ready to wipe out the Israelites because they were falling back into idolatry, Moses returned to the Lord and said, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Man, I look at the Old Testament, I realize Moses had the same heart for his people that Paul has for his people. And you know the blessing of that? That's a blessing because that's really the heart of Christ. Jesus was accursed for our sake. He took on our sin upon himself because he loved us. Now, I think about our own country. And you know, sometimes we get in these righteous and self-righteous modes where we look at the wrongs that are going on in our own country. And I, I, I agree with you. If you feel that way, I feel that way sometimes. I'm grieved by government. I'm grieved by sin. I'm grieved by the greed. I look at our, our own country and I love the United States. I love the foundation of it. I love the freedom. But there's a lot of things that I don't love about it. And yet sometimes we, be, we could become more judgmental than compassionate. We, we could become more judgmental of our own country than having a love and a heart that's broken for our own country. You know, God's heart breaks for us and for our nation. And I think that it's important that when we look at our nation, even if we think that we, even if we realize that we see things that are wrong, that our hearts go out to our own nation. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, get love for the souls of men. Then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the troubles of family or the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries. I need not further describe them. If you are concerned about the souls of men, get your soul full of a great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. Now, Paul is not a dog hater, okay? Paul is not a cat hater. And don't think, wow, you know, like the Bible's a cat hater, you know, a dog hater. It's really thinking about what's really important in life. And what Spurgeon was saying in commentary to this was, if our souls are full of this great grief, our little griefs will be driven out. There was a student that I, I had taught before that was from Bosnia. And if you know Bosnia, when they suffered through civil war, um, this student of mine, he was 16 years old, um, he was violent, uh, he tried to stab me with a pencil, I wrestled with him, he actually got an aluminum baseball bat and went uh, in, he was walking down the hall and he was ready to attack other students, it was very intense, we had to call the police, but let me tell you about how that situation got disarmed, he said, um, he said, nobody's going to tell me what to do, and he had this aluminum bat and, you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm ready because I'm just thinking he's going to swing at me. And, and really, your, your heart is beating, your adrenaline is going. And I told him, okay, I'm not going to tell you anything right now. I just want you to, to just listen. I just want to know why you're so angry. And he starts to share his anger, starts to share his grief. And then he talks about coming from Bosnia where, you know, he's here in the United States. He doesn't understand the culture. The people make fun of him because of his accent. And he was talking about family members that had been killed in the, the war in Bosnia. And he talked about walking over dead bodies as a child. And I'm realizing all of these things that he's facing, all of these things that he's going through. So I, I start to talk to him and I, I told him, hey, um, 
you know, it's really important that you put that bat down. <laughs> I said, because you don't want anyone to tell you what to do. But let me tell you something, that, that if you don't, there's going to be some people that come called police. And they're going to tell you what to do for the rest of your life. And you're going to be in a cell, and you need to, you need to give that up. And so he kind of calmed down. And what I realized about this guy was this. His grief over his own country was so great that even though he was not in his own country, he couldn't help but just think about what was going on back at home. It consumed him and it overwhelmed him. See, he didn't care about grades. Grades are not important when your family is getting killed. Um, You know, college plans, none of those things that you try to, those things, they all kind of fade away in light of civil war where your, your family members are dying. And I think what Paul is getting at and what Spurgeon commentated on was this, you know, I get troubled over stupid things sometimes, car problems. I I get troubled over financial things. I I get troubled over relational things. I get troubled over losing a game. I I get troubled over the 49ers and what's going on with their team this year. And, and, And what the scripture is saying is that when, In reality, our soul is full of a great grief. And in a sense, we could pray this, God, would you burden me with the things that burden you and give me joy with the things that give you joy? Then our our values begin to change. And what Paul is writing to his countrymen is this. He has a great sorrow because they are not walking with God. Because they missed that promise of the Messiah. And you know, we could be bummed for our friends when they didn't get the promotion or when they didn't get the grade, they didn't get into the college that they wanted, all of these things. But I'll tell you, the great grief is this. When I pray for people and I think about people, if they're not walking with the Lord, that's the great grief. Because I know that if someone is walking with the Lord, they're gonna go through trials and tribulation, but their eternal destiny is secure. And in the end, everything is gonna work out. But when they're not walking with the Lord, that's a very scary thing. And Paul feels this for his own countrymen. In verse four, he talks about all of these blessings that had been given to Israel. They had a special place in God's heart. To them was given the covenants, the promises, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Noah. Um, This covenant that God had given them, it was sealed. And not only that, but they had been adopted as God's people. Uh, God revealed himself in his glory to them in the tabernacle, in the temple. He gave them the law. He gave them the, the Old Testament. He gave them um, the, the fathers, the patriarchs. And even Christ himself came from them. So should we have a heart for the Jews? Absolutely. Should we have a heart for Israel? Yes. But what he is also saying is this in verse 5. From whom are the fathers, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall eternally, the eternally blessed God, amen. Realize this, even though they are the people of God, they still need to come to a saving knowledge and a trust by faith in their Messiah. And we, by faith, must trust in Christ. We're not saved biologically because we're born into something. We're, we're not saved physiologically because we happen to be descendants from a certain line you know those those things there are some blessings from being of a certain heritage obviously your own heritage is going to be special to you but it doesn't save you so this next question could come up in verses 6 through 12 and the question is this has god's word failed has god's word failed if they were given the promises of god and they rejected god Has God's word failed? Well, let me ask you a question. What about those who are raised in a Christian home and aren't walking with the Lord? What about those that were homeschooled or they they went to a Christian school or they went to youth group? Has God's word been ineffective in their lives? Paul answers this in verse six, in a sense. It says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are seed of Abraham. But it says in Isaac, your seed shall be called. 
Again, the fact that the Jews overall as a people didn't follow Christ doesn't mean that God's word has failed. When you think about it, Israel, um, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. What does Jacob mean? Heel catcher, in a sense it's trickster, conniver. Israel, those that are governed by God. He changes his name. And yet, not all children are, are children or seed of Abraham because they're biological seed of Abraham. But it says in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Remember that Abraham had Isaac and he also had Ishmael. But Isaac's descendants were the descendants of the promise. So what he's saying is it's not just this biological thing. But let me also say this. Even though God still has a plan for the physical Jews by birth and for he has a plan for Israel, we'll get more into that, especially in Romans chapter 11. The church is not a replacement for Israel. This is where people get it wrong. There's a theology called replacement theology. And replacement theology is this. All of the promises for biological and physical Israel are now given to the church. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying is this. Just like the Gentiles, the Jews must come to this saving faith in Christ. So just biology and just physiology doesn't save us. In the same way, people say, well, you know, we're all children of God. Is that true? Yes and no. Yes, God created us. He's the heavenly father. But no, when it comes to that adoption and that relationship. Because in the offer to be a part of the family of God, that is something that is received by faith. So if, if it were just, we're all God's children, why evangelize? If we're all God's children, why witness to anyone? Why tell anyone, anyone about Christ? Why try to show them that, that God is real and that Jesus died for their sins? But understand this, because Jesus is the only way, we have a responsibility to tell people. We have a responsibility not to keep this to ourselves. So it says in verse 8, that is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even Isaac, our father. And this is, this is a, another example. So he uses the example here of Isaac versus Ishmael. But now he's going to look at another pair of brothers, Jacob and Esau. Look at what it says here in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At the time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even Isaac, our father. For the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So now we have a story of this family that God used to introduce himself to the world and these patriarchs, this, this family line. If you've never read through the book of Genesis, please take time to read Genesis. To, and it's the first book in the Bible. It's the beginning. It's, it's the foundation of, of the rest of God's plan. Um, on Wednesday nights, what we're going to be doing in the fall is uh, just continuing through the Old Testament, taking our weekly reading and just kind of focusing on that. And so I'm excited about that because if I look at it a year, what we're hoping to accomplish is this, is that as we're reading through the Old Testament on our daily readings, that we just kind of emphasize a part of it. And it's almost like a Bible survey. Uh, it's important that we know the word of God. Genesis, this book of beginnings, the beginning of the world. And I find it interesting that from Adam to Abraham, there's 2,000 years of history covered in Genesis 1 through 11. And in Genesis 12 through 50, he uses the rest of those chapters really to tell the story of his dealings with this family. So Isaac... And Rebecca, they had two sons. They were twins. One was named Jacob and the other one was named Esau. And it was prophesied that the younger, uh, the older 
Esau would serve the younger. And so when you look at these two brothers, before they're born, before they did any good, before they did any bad, these things are written of them, that God's purpose of election might stand. Now, in verse 13, here's that troublesome verse. And it answers this question, or we're going to answer this question, does God show partiality? Verse 13, it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, if you study um, in the Greek language, uh, we realize something. We, we realize that the word hate means to love less in degree. But to me, that doesn't really matter. What matters is there's a fact here that it says in Scripture, and I can't argue with Scripture, that God loved one of them or accepted one of them and he rejected another. God accepted one and rejected another. Now, that kind of blows me away. And maybe you struggle with this verse, and so have I. And this morning, uh, in order to teach this morning, uh, man, I have been studying like crazy and praying and wrestling with this text and relying upon the Holy Spirit because I believe that we could be taught by the Holy Spirit as we study. Um, there's nothing that you learn more than when you study to teach it to other people. And I'll tell you, when I was a teacher, you know, in a public high school, if I struggled with the concept, I knew that my students would struggle with the concept. So it was easy as a high school teacher when we're teaching through uh, the subjunctive tense, you know, or mood, um, and going, the subjunctive is kind of a really difficult English language concept. And then I would think, well, if they don't really get that, is that really that big of a deal? <laughs> and I would kind of teach it, even though it was a little bit foggy to me still, and then I would teach it the best that I could, and then just kind of move on. But I can't do that with the Word of God, especially when it comes to something like this, because this verse is a stumbling block. The concept of election is a stumbling block for many people. And many people say, well, if God is going to choose before I'm born, forget it, I'm out. And if that's the God that is the God of the Bible, that God doesn't make any kind of sense to me. So as I read this and I study through it, I'm praying, God, please help me to understand this so that I could teach it. And I, I want to share with you the blessing is that I'm excited to be able to share with you. Um, for me, even though I've taught this before, I think the, the longer that I'm studying, the clearer that this is getting. So this will be my clearest explanation that I've ever given on this topic. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Uh, by the way, his sermon called Jacob Have I Loved, But Esau Have I Hated, that's what he titled his sermon. This is just, it was an awesome sermon. And this is what he wrote in his introduction. He said, do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able thoroughly to elucidate the great mysteries of predestination there are some men who claim to know all about the matter they twist it round their fingers as easily as it were an everyday thing but depend upon it he who thinks he knows all about this mystery knows but very little it is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge he who dives deep finds that there is the lowest depth to which he can attain a deeper depth still the fact is, the great question about man's responsibility, free will, and predestination have been fought over and over and over again, have been answered in 10,000 different ways, and the result has been that we know just as much about the matter as when we first began. The combatants have thrown dust into each other's eyes and have hindered each other from seeing, and then they have concluded that because they put the other people's eyes out that they therefore could see. The truth is, neither you nor I have any right to want to know more about predestination than what God tells us, and that is enough for us. If it were worthwhile for us to know more, God would have revealed more. What God has told us, we are to believe. But to the knowledge thus gained, we are, to, we are too apt to add our own vague notions, and then we are sure to go wrong. It would be better if in all controversies men had simply stood hard and fast by thus saith the Lord, instead of having said, thus and thus I think. 
<laughs> he couldn't put it any better than, I mean, that's, it's like the more I study, the more that I realize there are some, um, not contradictions because God doesn't contradict himself, but when you think about um, these, these uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank for that word. Two opposites held in tension. Help me out here, Callie. It's an English term. Paradox. Uh, a paradox is two seemingly unlike things that somehow are held in tension. God holds us responsible for choosing. He um, holds us responsible for receiving this free gift. And yet God knows what we're going to choose. And those things are held in absolute tension. So for me, verse 15, this verse has been the key in understanding not only election and predestination, but this passage um, where it speaks of Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Now, some people say, well, Esau being the Edomites, the people of Edom, and Jacob being Israel. That to me doesn't make it easier. <laughs> that, that means that if, if God chose you know, not to love one and to love the other, and then we say, well, it's nations. That's just a lot of people. And that makes it even harder to understand, right? That if God, why would God choose some people and not other people? What I realized is that these were actually brothers from the same parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Clearly, one of the brothers was accepted by God and one was rejected. And so the main question was not, did this happen, but why? That's the question, why? Why was one accepted and why was one rejected? Now, I'm going to tell you how my faulty thinking has confused me over time. I looked for one answer to two questions. I thought it was the same answer. Now, now just track with me here. I know that, man, there's, there's gears going, there's smoke coming out of your brains right now. I, I looked for one answer to two questions. The two questions was this. Why did God accept Jacob and why did he reject Esau? And I thought it was one answer. But in studying scripture, it's not. It's one answer for why he accepted Jacob. And the second question, why did he reject Esau? That's a different answer. I'm going to begin with the first one. Why did he accept Jacob? Jacob, the heel catcher, that's what his name means, the conniver, the trickster. He took his older brother's birthright by bribery. If you've read the account in Genesis chapter 25, it says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me now? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I I've said that before. I'm, so, I'm starving to death. I'm not starving to death. You know, I'm just hungry. I just missed my meal by a couple of hours and now I'm starving to death. So Esau comes in and he says, hey, I'm starving to death. You know, I'm about to die. And he says, sell me your birthright. And what a birthright was, it was a right of blessing and heritage and life from the father handed down to the eldest son. And Jacob says, swear to me, give an oath. And Esau gives the oath, go ahead. I, you know, I'm about ready to die anyway. And, and I look at that and I look at Jacob's character. He tricked him out of this birthright, okay? He manipulated him. And then when his father was about to die, you know, when, when Isaac was about to die, uh, he took his older's blessing by trickery. You know what he did is uh, his mom said, hey, you know, Jacob, come here. You know, your dad is gonna give a, a blessing to your brother. And she liked, East, I mean, she liked Jacob better than Esau. So she said, why don't you go ahead and cook some of that venison the way that your brother Esau does that and then go in and give it to your brother. And then, and then Jacob said, well, my brother Esau, he's really hairy. And if my dad reaches out, because his dad was blind by that time, if he reaches out and feels my arms and realizes that I don't have that kind of hair, he's gonna know it's not Esau. And then so they come up with this plan and he wears this animal skin. And so when, when they come in to their, you know, he comes into his dad and Isaac is there. He's like, who is this? And he says, it's Esau. And he says, well, by the, you know, 
you say that it's Esau, but you know, you, you, uh, you sound like Jacob, and he reaches out and he fills the arm. He's like, okay, it really is Esau. So, I mean, this is Jacob's character, all right? So remember, we're answering this question, why did God love Jacob? Why did he choose Jacob? Because a lot of times people get it mixed up. Oh, he chose Jacob because he had a good character. He chose Jacob because he was the good guy, because Jacob was really, you know, he was better than Esau. Well, what about this? After he steals uh, Esau's birthright and his blessing, he's afraid that his brother's going to kill him, so he runs away. He meets Laban, a distant relative, and uh, Laban has two daughters, and you know that he, he loves the, one of the daughters, and Laban tricks him, and he gives him the other daughter, even though he had worked seven years for him. He goes, oh, okay, if you work another seven years, I'll give you that daughter. And so what Jacob does is while he's working there for Laban, he's like, how about this? Let's divide up the livestock. I've been working for you. This is going on 14 years now. How about this? All of the, the cows that are spotted and speckled, I'll keep, and the ones that aren't, you keep. And he breeds them in such a way that the spotted and speckled ones begin to multiply, and he rips off Laban. So now, now he's leaving and he gets away from Laban. Then he hears that his brother Esau is coming. He thinks, well, Esau's coming. He, he's going to attack me. You know, Esau's going to kill me. So this little conniver, you know, weasel, what he does instead of being the manly person to say, I'll go meet my brother and confess my sin to him. What I'll do is I'll send my wife and kids and everyone ahead saying, oh, here, we're his wife and kids. You know, please don't hurt him. By the time he gets to me, he won't hurt me. Again, this is Jacob's character. Man, he's a weasel. And then, and then not only that, but remember this. Jacob, when he has the dream, do you, you remember when uh, Jacob is there in, in Bethel, he has the, the dream and he sees uh, uh, the ladder of God coming down from heaven. And notice that Jacob... Uh, when Jacob wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place after having this dream, I want you to listen to what Jacob says. Jacob made a vow saying, if, now this is God. This is now, now he's not just trying to manipulate people. He's trying to manipulate God. He says, if God will be with me and keep me this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Have you ever bargained with God? God, I'll serve you if. I'll serve you when. If my life, if you answer this prayer the way that I want you to answer it, I will know that you love me. God, I will know that you really answer prayer if you do this. And we, be, and we, we could point fingers at Jacob, but I'm like Jacob at times in that trying to manipulate God to do what I want him to do. Now, Here's the question. Did God choose Jacob because of his outstanding and stellar character? Absolutely not. God was merciful to Jacob. Absolutely merciful. In fact, there could be nothing in Jacob that I see that made God love him. And the only reason why God must have loved him was because of God's own grace and because of God's own mercy. Now, here's the difference, is that Jacob eventually did come to this place of trusting God, okay? And, and in coming to trust God, you know what blows me away? You, you know the account of when Jacob wrestled with God? Read it again. Read it again. And what I read this time was this. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with the man that you know wrestled with the angel or the angel of the lord it says that god wrestled with jacob now, that's a slight difference when when i if you wrestle with someone you you actually have to participate right you do something so if you're trying to take um you know someone has something that you want and you're trying to get it from them you wrestle with them they're not wrestling with you you're wrestling with them and what i see is that god is is wrestling with Jacob. He's trying to get Jacob to this place where Jacob surrenders to God. And eventually he does. Only after his hip socket is out of joint and only after much pain, then Jacob begins to cling to God. Now he does come to this place of clinging to God 
And sometimes we are so proud and so stubborn that the only time we cling to God is, man, when our hip is out of joint. When things are messed up in our lives and it just seems like our life is falling apart, then we cling to God. And so I can't blame Jacob because I, I see that there's a little bit of Jacob in all of us, maybe a lot of Jacob in all of us. It's that sense of, well, I got it on my own until things are messed up. Now I'm going to wrestle and I'm going to cling to God. So why did God love Jacob? It's because God is love, because God is merciful, because God showed his grace. That's the answer to why God loved Jacob. Now, here's the second question. Why did God reject Esau? Well, let's look at Esau for a moment. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. <laughs> he, he sold his inheritance, his life, his blessing, his, you know, his future, and I really believe that we give up things and people give up things of importance and life and blessing for temporary fulfillment. Esau is an absolute picture of the flesh of just saying, you know what? I will give up my heritage and my faith and my family and I will give up for this temporary thing. And you see people do that time and time again. Some of you have come from that testimony. For those of you that have ever... Um, been to team challenge you know that that is um that is an absolute testimony of so many people that have given up heritage and faith and life and all of these things for something that is temporary or people that you know that for a relationship all of a sudden boom they just change and they're just different and they just go their own way because of a relationship with another person Esau gives up his birthright. Now you and I, we're, we're right when we say that the reason why God loves Jacob is because God loves to do so. There's no reason in Jacob in and of himself. But to give that same answer as to why God does not accept Esau is to throw God under the bus because that is not God's character. It's Esau that is rejecting God. And Esau, that is the one to blame. Every person that rejects heaven, rejects it himself. Every person that says no to the free gift of salvation, closes the door themselves. It's not God that puts that into the heart of people. So while regenerated Christians can in no way claim to have earned salvation, those who are unregenerated and not saved only have to look into the mirror as why they are not saved. In fact, let me ask you this. Was Esau sorry for losing his birthright? He was. It says that he, he wept. He was sorrowful for it. You know what he attempted to do as soon as he found out and he realized that he lost his blessing also? He sought to regain the blessing by saying, I'll go and I'll hunt venison and I'll prepare it again and I'll gain the blessing. So let me explain this. The person of the flesh does the same thing. They think, I have lost salvation by giving into temptation and doing bad things. Therefore, I will gain salvation by reversing it and doing good things. And that is not how a person is ever saved. It's not like, hey, I'm saved, like I've messed up, and now I have to start doing good. You know, that's, that's karma. Grace trumps karma every time. Karma is this thing of like, you know, it's going to come back on you. Grace is, I don't deserve it, but God has given it to me. Because Jesus has purchased it for me. Jesus has died for my sin. And that's why there's grace. And it's only through the grace of Jesus that we can be saved. So, my problem isn't that Esau was not loved. I understand that. My problem is that Jacob was loved. <laughs> my problem is that Jacob was loved at all. But then, if I were to clamor, God give justice, then I would have to be saying that for myself. And for myself, I don't want God to be just. I want him to be gracious and merciful. See, for anyone that receives the grace of God, it is just a gift that we've received. We have nothing to claim like I did this. But if I reject it, that is all on me. If I receive that gift, that's only because God is loving and gracious and merciful. But if I reject it, that's all on me. So I want to close with this. 
What shall we say then in verse 14? Is God unrighteous? Is God unjust? No. It says, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. As I close with this last illustration uh, we were not going to get through the chapter today. Pharaoh, it says, when Pharaoh would not let God's people go, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says nine times in a row, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh said, okay, I'll let you go. And then Moses said, okay, let's go, you guys. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then after those nine times of Pharaoh, it's saying that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God took the trajectory of Pharaoh's heart. And at some point in God's omniscience and omnipotence said, I'm going to take you in the way that you want to go. Here's the danger in that. The danger is that sometimes people say, well, I'll repent later. You know what? I'm just not ready yet. I'm not ready to, to surrender to Jesus yet. I know that God is true. I know that the Bible is true. I know that, that all of this is right, but I'm just not ready. And there's no telling at what point in time my heart becomes so hardened that I'm not listening to the things of God. Now, I believe that if you're here and you're listening to this message that God still has a plan for you because I, I, I just believe that if God has you hearing that message, that there's still hope. If I reject that message, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know how long my life is going to be. And I also don't know if my heart is gonna get so hardened that I'm gonna reject the things of God. And so I just implore you, if you've never received Christ to do so today to pray and open up your heart to god today because at the end of your life when you stand before god there will be no one to blame including god but when i receive the grace and the love and mercy it is not because i'm a good person and because i've earned it it is because god is gracious and merciful and i have received that gift so as i have the worship team come back up as we consider these scriptures, first of all, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you've never surrendered, let today be that day. Let that day be today because you know what has been happening is that in a sense, God has been wrestling with you. God has been reaching out to you. He's been putting people into your life. He's been giving you scriptures. You've been hearing things and it just seems like all of these things seem to come together and that's because God is reaching out to you. So open up your heart to him this morning and do not wait and surrender and receive the grace and mercy of God. For those of us that have received that grace and mercy, we've received Christ as our savior. Let us not only thank him, but let's worship him for it. Let's not think of this as a doctrine just to know in our minds. This, should, this is not an intellectual concept like, okay, I check because I understand the subjunctive now. This is something, the subjunctive doesn't cause me to worship. This should cause us to worship. This should cause us to humble ourselves to say, God, thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that you've reached out to me. And then let me also say that it should cause us to pray for the people that don't know the Lord and to ask the Lord to draw them and to say, God, use me to reach out to them. Because like Paul we should have that heart of compassion that says, God, my heart is broken for my people. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word. And this morning, by faith, we believe that that has happened. God, there are things that I don't fully comprehend, and I admit that. But Lord, I see that you are a God that is just, 
And you are also a God that is merciful. You're a God that doesn't let any evil go, and yet you are a God that forgives sin. And God, this paradox of, of your essence of being, of your identity, is something that I don't understand because I, I can't do that the same way. But Lord, I'm praying right now for those that have never received your grace and your love and your mercy, that they wouldn't be like Esau thinking that they have to go out and do some things to reverse all of the bad things in order for you to receive them. Lord, I pray for repentance, but I pray that that repentance, that turn comes with, first of all, just humbling themselves before you and saying, Jesus, please forgive me. And then I repent and just change my life and help me to do what is right in your eyes and to follow you out of gratitude for what you've done, not to try to earn it, but because, Lord, you have already purchase that gift for me father this morning i would pray for us that are followers of christ born again regenerated believers that we would realize that we worship you because you are worthy to be worshiped and lord we thank you for your grace and your love and mercy that is absolutely amazing because like jacob we don't deserve it And finally, Father, I pray that you would give us a heart for others. Lord, there are people that I know that, Lord, even in my mind right now and even in my heart right now, that I am praying for, that they would turn towards you. That, Lord, you would draw them, that they would experience the joy and the peace that comes from that sweet surrender to you. That they would know that there's an eternal destination that is set And that, God, you would use us also to be witnesses. You would use us, Lord. We we submit ourselves to you, Lord, and we're asking you to give us courage and to give us love and compassion for people to be able to share our faith, Lord, by how we live and by loving them, but also by our words. Give us boldness. Open those doors, God. So we thank you this morning and we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.